You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, May 8th. I'm an Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and Immunology. My focus has been a lot on testing, uh, both PCR-based testing and serology, and also development of serological surveys. And, uh, and we have a lot of new research and activities at the state and local level surrounding these types of activities. So happy to answer questions. Great. Thank you, Dr. Minna. So let's start with uh, first question. Hi, thank you for doing this. Um, so the percentage of tests coming back positive appears to be falling. Does that mean we're doing enough testing now or at least we're doing better than we were? And what are some other indicators we should be looking at to determine whether we are doing enough testing? Yeah, so the percentage of tests that are coming back positive, the, it's, it's, um, uh, it's good that it's falling, of course. Uh, it's, it, suggest some things about the epidemic, but but it's a, it gets obscured. So we've been scaling up testing more or less across the country, of course, um, testing continues to increase. And, um, and what that does is it widens the number of people or the, the type of person that we are necessarily testing. So for example, at the very beginning, it was only hospitalized patients and, and healthcare workers. Um, and we've kind of scaled up to now that it's becoming much more um, readily available to uh, individuals across the population. We expect, even if there even if there was no change in the epidemic from the beginning of it, we would expect that we would see potentially a decrease in in positive rates just because we're opening it up to people who are maybe asymptomatic or have no known exposures. Um, but in general, we do see in most places, at least in major metropolitan areas, for example, in places that have really adhered to um, social distancing, we have seen a fall. And I think the fact that we can capture that does suggest that we're doing um, we're we're doing um, decently with testing. We're not just triaging to the people who are sick. Um, uh, but we still, uh, it's, it almost gets to, a, at this point in the epidemic, the fact that we don't, that we still are under testing, I would say, at least the availability of tests are still not adequate um, in terms of how we want to be using them. Uh, I don't know that we're doing enough. And I don't know that just screening for a virus in the, in the population is necessarily the right way to do it. And virus screening really needs to be done in conjunction with antibody screens so that you can interpret what the prevalence means. Um, so I think we still have a long way to go to actually scale up testing to the point where, for example, we can use it to do very um, robust surveillance. We're not close to that at this point. Um, and, uh, and we're, we're barely scratching the surface in terms of getting people who just want to be tested able to be tested. Um, so I would say that no, we're not, we're not where we need to be. We're much better than where we were. Um, and we're, we're doing better now than I thought we would be um, just five or six weeks ago. Uh, but it's still not optimal. Um, just a quick follow-up question. Some states are starting to lift restrictions on letting businesses reopen. So would you expect that positive or the rate of positive tests um, to start creeping up again? Uh, well, I think asking about the rate of positive tests to creep up is a, it, again, it, that really depends on how widely we're starting to screen. The real question is, do we expect the rate of people getting infected to start increasing again? 
Um, I think yes. I think when we start opening things up, we should anticipate that people will start spreading uh, the infection of what we know about this virus, if nothing else, and, and there's a lot we know about it now, but if nothing else, we, we know that the virus can and does have the ability to spread very rapidly and be very contagious. And we see that in nursing homes, we see that in urban settings. So when people start funneling back to work, um, I think that we can expect and we should expect to see more cases. The question is, can we stop those cases from becoming large outbreaks? And that's where we need more testing to be able to do what I call enhanced surveillance, um, where, where it's enha sufficiently enhanced to actually be um, almost real time to control outbreaks. But um, you know, sh I, I do think that we'll see, we'll see cases. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hello, hi. Um, so we all know that um, um, confinement has saved life, lives. I would like to know if uh, uh, um, you could, uh, I mean, there is a way to, to provide an indication of the additional lives that could have been saved if the confinement was done, uh, let's say, in an ideal way, meaning uh, uh, doing enough tests to separate uh, those infected, positive, positive and symptomatic from those um, that were healthy or uh, most at risk, so that we, sh we shouldn't have accept that there would be some infection or contagion within the confinement. Is that possible to make such a, a research? So you're, you're essentially asking what I think is, can we estimate what we call in epidemiology the counterfactual? Um, what would have happened had we done something different than we did do? Um, yes, there are ways to estimate those types of things. And um, for example, once we have model, epidemiological models that actually fit the epidemic from what we know of it um, and what we learn from it, we can go back and retro, retrospectively look and say, you know, these were the interventions we put in place at this point, and this was the effect. How do we put that intervention in place three weeks earlier? What would have been the effect? So we, we can do what we call simulation modeling, where we recreate um, artificial epidemics that, that look like the epidemics that did happen or that are happening. And we can uh, modulate those epidemics in the simulations to understand what, what would have happened had we acted differently at any point along the curve. Uh, and, so, and those are certainly ongoing all the time. Usually at this point, because we're in crisis mode trying to deal with this epidemic, uh, we are very much looking, most, most of the interventions we're looking at are what can we do now and in the future. And, and uh, you know, eventually there's going to be time to do the autopsies of this epidemic and understand uh, what really, what we could have done differently so that we can learn from it. And those are also starting to, to happen as well. Um, but I think most of us are looking forward at the moment to try to figure out what what we can do now, uh, you know, and we'll we'll go back and explore what would have been different later on. So at this point, there is, there is no way to actually to measure the infection rate that happened among people confined in the same place between infected. No. Uh, 
No, no, we can, we, that's part of what we're studying now. I might've misunderstood your other question. Um, we can measure the, the um, types of infection rates that occur within a household, for example, and we can, we can test people uh, who are positive and then monitor their family members, for example, and try to understand what are the infection rates that are happening across uh, within households. And there's been, the, the estimates, however, have been pretty wide. So I'd refrain from even giving a hard estimate right now because the, they, that has to do both with the R-naught of the virus and also um, what we've measured has been, you know, it, anywhere from one person on average um, infects less than one extra person within their household to a few people in their household. And, and those studies are sort of still pinning down what the real infectivity looks like. Thank you. Uh, next question. Hi, Professor. Thank you for taking your time. Uh, my question is about the reopening. So since the end of April, nearly half of the states have released their restrictions. But after 10 days or so of this reopening, the data seems not so optimistic, like some new outbreaks in the Middle West. And for the whole country, the plateau seems still not passed. So how did you evaluate the reopening, which is in practice? Do you think for some states they should stop and turn back, maybe in some days later? Yeah, I, I mean, at this point, I'm not, uh, I do not support reopening at the moment. Um, I think that, uh, I think it, I should say, I don't support reopening from the perspective of infectious diseases and public health. Um, there is a serious need to evaluate what are the trade-offs we're making, maybe without recognizing them at the moment, for both the short and long-term economic outcomes of the country. Uh, just the New York Times, I think, today uh, just reported, or I just, I'm sure that, I don't know where the numbers came from, but uh, over 14% uh, unemployment rate or something along those lines. And, you know, so these are extraordinary numbers that are occurring because of, of um, social distancing and, and uh, localized lockdowns and um, close closures of works. And so at some point we have to really contend with um, trying to understand what are the trade-offs we're making and frankly, what are the trade-offs we as a society are comfortable making. If we choose to go back to work as individual states, um, that's one direction that states can go, but that will most likely come with added uh, cases and reversal of the gains that have been made to reduce transmission. So, uh, but the benefit of course would be that people will start going back to work and there is a scenario where, um, where that might actually be more beneficial than continuing to, to lock down and uh, you know, despite the extra cases that would occur. So, um, so from my, from my perspective as an infectious disease epidemiologist, if somebody asks me, do I think it's the smart thing to do from an infectious disease perspective, I would say no. I think that we should remain uh, in social distancing mode uh, until we really get cases to very, very low levels. They're still not uh, very low. We still, on, in the drive-through um, testing sites, for example, we still routinely get 10 or 15% positive results uh, luckily, those are starting to go down, but that means that there's a lot of community transmission ongoing. And if we open things back up, we really do run the risk of major 
uh, outbreaks happening again, in particular because we did not take the last couple of months while social distancing to put heightened surveillance programs in place. So we are essentially back exactly where we were two months ago before we went into social distancing. Only now we have much more localized transmission to ignite new outbreaks than we did back then. So I think that there's a real danger. Um, but I also recognize the reports of 14% unemployment and I have a, a real concern and um, fear that by focusing too heavily on infectious disease public health, we might start to neglect um, other areas of public health related more to the economy. And we need to be uh, all communicating in any time we make a public health decision that's through the lens of infectious disease, we have to balance that decision with, uh, with an economic lens and a, and a societal lens as well. And I think those discussions are starting to happen much more frequently than they were at the beginning. Uh, just a quick follow-up. So in your opinion, what do you mean by very low level if in, it is a perfect situation? Um, almost no new transmission events. I think uh, if you can recognize new transmission events on a daily basis, then that's too many. That means that we are in a state where the moment we open up, we will start to see much wider spread transmission occur um, pretty rapidly. It might not be in a week, it might not be in two weeks, but multiple generation times down the road, all of a sudden we find that we're back on an exponential curve upwards. And, um, and so the I think that what, what I really mean um, when, when I say that very low numbers, I mean low, sufficiently low so that we actually have a fighting chance to, to detect and use contact tracing to control the, the new outbreaks. I think at the moment, the, the contact tracing efforts that are being uh, performed are being performed in settings with extremely wide local transmission which makes it almost impossible to keep up with the curve. And uh, contact tracing efforts are, um, while very important, uh, during, during widespread transmission, they, they start to lose importance and there's diminishing returns. And I would like to get to a place where the returns of contact tracing are really, in, are really a, a readily apparent and that it's a tool that we can utilize. Okay, thank you. Next question. Hi, Dr. Mina. Um, your colleague, uh, Jonathan Grad, yesterday on this conference call um, talked a little bit about um, not, not reopening necessarily, but what happens after reopening when, if cases do again spike. And he said few people are really um, thinking about uh, how we would go about reimposing um, controls, whatever they would be, and, and whether they could be much more targeted based on what we've learned. And I wonder, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Do you, um, do you agree that folks really aren't thinking about that? And um, if so, what kinds of things, how might we reimpose these controls in a way that would be different from the first time? Um, I think some people are thinking about it and some people are not. Uh, I know that I've been in both sides of those conversations with um, thought leaders and policy leaders from across the country. And, um, um, I think that in general, though, there is a level of um, uh, possibly willful ignorance or just blissful ignorance. I'm not quite sure which, 
which is the right word to use there, but um, in states that are choosing to open, I think that there is not a sufficiently serious conversation about um, what will happen if major outbreaks do start to occur. Can you turn back the tides again? I, I, my personal feeling is this, this shutdown mode, we had the, the country was on board with it. People recognize the importance um, and, and what has happened because it has been largely successful, rel relatively speaking, um, people have um, lost track uh, in a way of why they're doing it, which is fine. We don't anticipate that the that normal that, that non non epidemiologists and non you know people that don't normally think about infectious diseases all day long. Um, there there isn't a reason to anticipate that people should um, have a good understanding of how infectious disease dynamics work. So, for example, when I look out of my house right now, I don't see people falling over uh, from coronavirus. And, and even when I go to the hospital, I don't see a huge number of people with coronavirus. And that, I think, makes people think that the, that the curve is on the downswing and that we're, that we're in the clear and, uh, and that this is a dynamic kind of like influenza where when you see the reduction that you see that, that it continues to decline despite going about your day. Um, as per normal, but what we're actually seeing is just the the decreases that we're seeing and the and the the lack of coronavirus cases all around us is really in direct response to our social distancing. So um, I think unfortunately the messaging wasn't made clear enough to people that the benefit that we're seeing that we're all sort of subconsciously seeing potentially um, by not ending ourselves up in the hospital and, and not having you know, huge numbers of our family members all in the hospital or our neighbors uh, is a direct result of us social distancing now and over the last couple of months. Uh, and because we didn't make that clear, people have now come to the conclusion that maybe it wasn't even necessary in the first place, because it's very hard to recognize what is not actually happening. And it's, again, the counterfactual. Like, we, we, we can't anticipate that people should understand the counterfactual of what happened, of what didn't happen, I should say. And, and that, that means that people have kind of, I think there's a large fraction of America that probably lost some of the energy to social distance, not because, not just because they want to get back to work, but they actually don't necessarily believe that it was useful because they never saw the storm that would have hit otherwise. And how do we go back then? Can we, if, if outbreaks do start to occur again, can we then say to those people say, hey, we need you to go back into social distancing my concern is they'll say, no, it didn't do anything last time. Look, we have an outbreak. And they wouldn't have recognized how much their efforts last time did actually prevent the outbreak. Um, they, they might just fool themselves into thinking that it wasn't happening yet. So I, the, I don't know, that was a long-winded way of saying that I am really concerned that as we tr if we try to go back and social distance again, a lot of America might lose, um, lose a belief that this is actually useful. And, and we'll refrain from being willing to do it a second time. So this was kind of our major, um, I, th I don't think that we're gonna have a lockdown like we saw the last couple of months. Um, and those discussions have to start happening. Can, is there some way to, to prepare for that, to prepare for people to act differently than they did the first time? I don't think we'll be able to just say, hey, um, for the next you know, two months again, stay home. People will revolt, um, I think. And, um, 
uh, I don't think serious enough considerations being taken. People are just assuming that we can open up and if we need to close back again, we will and we can keep it really dynamic. And um, I don't think in many parts of the country that people will be willing to do that. And I, I worry very much about it. So does that mean from a death rate standpoint, uh, you know, that it might be pretty grim in the months ahead? Uh, except people have accepted it or people can get used to almost anything, which is unfortunate. Yeah. Well, I think um, I, th I do anticipate that if outbreaks do start to occur again, um, you know, whether it's in the next couple of months or whether it's in um, September and October, we'll, we'll see. Um, uh, I think we will start to see death rates climb again as a result of coronavirus. Um, and we'll have to, um, I think some areas of the country and some, it might be very localized, will we'll really respond quickly and adapt and say, okay, we have to shut down again. You know, last time wasn't so bad, we'll figure it out. Uh, or, or it was bad and we won't figure it out. Um, you know, or things will just go on and, and we will um, accept a lot of uh, death and in return, we'll end up with uh, potentially getting closer to herd immunity, but at, but at an extreme cost. Um, the real question though is, is that cost a higher cost than economic collapse? Um, this is, these are the like really existential kind of questions we're asking that are not easy to answer. Thank you. Next question. Thanks for the time here. I am reporting on a assisted living facility with a large number of coronavirus cases and a large number of coronavirus linked deaths. And so uh, one question I had, uh, and, and this facility I should say has a track record of uh, major incidents. So that, that's uh, what I wanted to ask. Is there any link between the track record of an assisted living facility or nursing home and the likeliness of a COVID-19 outbreak at that facility. Uh, from, from what I've maybe read, there might not be much of a correlation that's been established yet, though would it be safe to say that a, a troubled track record raises questions about a facility's preparedness? Um, well, I would start by saying that I'm certainly not an expert on assisted living facilities and nursing homes. I, I have become very, uh, very involved with um, some of the testing that's going on in state surrounding it, but I, um, uh, my expertise is certainly not lying within that realm normally. Um, uh, so that's a big caveat that take whatever I say next with a grain of salt. Um, uh, I do think, you know, if we, if we consider an assisted living facility or, or a skilled nursing facility um, or a nursing home, you know, in the, in the realm of, um, you know, similar to hospitals, and we say, what a troubled hospital that has let big infectious um, incidents slide and, and things like that, and has had um, problems with um, infectious disease outbreaks and infection control. Would we assume that a facility like that would potentially be at greater risk? Um, I think yes, unless in, in um, some of those past incidents have really led to important change within the facility. But if they didn't lead to important change, um, then I would say, sure. I mean, it, it would only make sense that if you're pretty relaxed on your policies and, and relaxed on infection control in general, then, then you're probably not going to um, deal as well during an epidemic or pandemic time as, as a place that has very good, clear, crisp policies that they adhere to in place. So 
I think we could assume that if the research were done well, we might see some correlation. But again, um, I don't really know how well nursing homes respond uh, when under under the, the the spotlight if if a big problem does happen in the past. Thanks. Next question. Hey, Michael. Um, hey, so uh, obviously nobody knows how to predict the future, but I'd like, and you've answered parts of this, but I'd like you to uh, guess uh, more specifically, like what happens between now and New Year's in terms of like uh, uh, virus popping back up, uh, total shutdown, and possibility of a vaccine uh, savior coming along in that time frame. Uh, so I'm the oracle now. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, no, I can just take a guess. Um, again, like we, we I, I do think that um, between, if I were to take a guess, and it's one of many guesses I could take, but it's, I think that we will, um, we will see sort of residual, so we'll see social distancing start to start to disappear at an accelerating rate. So in the same way that social distancing became uh, part of our, our societal structure. Initially, it happened with an accelerating pace, and then all of a sudden, everyone put in place um, policies. I think we'll, we might start to see um, it, it decel, it, it, people leave social distancing at greater and greater rates over the next month. Um, places, some places that are going to be a little bit more conservative about keeping social distancing in place, um, you know, until policies are, better policies are put in place. I think even those places will start to see a diminishment in uh, diminished social distancing, and uh, and that may you know if it does lead to new outbreaks, you might see places like Massachusetts or other states where you know might end up going back into social distancing, and you might see places like Georgia say you know what we're we're not going to do that. Um, th those are just two examples, just based current on current policy, um, and. Uh, you know, and I think that w what we do next is, in terms of how we respond to um, larger outbreaks is going to in part be related to, to the var variation that we see across the country. So if we see that some states that s slow down their social distancing or remove it altogether, if we see that they do start having outbreaks, but we see that they can contain those outbreaks and that they're not taking over their, their ICU beds and their hospitals, um, and that the testing is in place to actually be able to provide some, some utility, then we might see that other states also will follow that route. If instead we see that the first state to, to really release distancing immediately starts having major, um, ma major problems with um, resource limitations and hospital beds and things, then I think we can assume that other places will look at that and say, oh, well, we don't want to be there. So we'll go back into social distancing as much as we can get our constituents to do. So I think it's going to really depend on how the first few places um, fare, and and that's kind of how we respond as humans. We look, you know, first impressions, um, and so the the country is certainly going to be looking at places like Georgia that are choosing to open up a little bit quicker than others as a testing ground. Now, whether what happens in Georgia can be applied elsewhere, in particular in places like New York, Philly, Boston, Chicago, you know, I, I think that that's a big question just because these very dense densely populated areas will have different dynamics. So moving into the fall, I do, I personally think, I don't, I really don't know what's going to happen in the summer. We might end up getting, um, seeing limited spread 
uh, if this turns out to be exquisitely sensitive to the weather patterns. Now, we don't have a lot of data to suggest that it will be. Um, but if it is, then I do think in the fall, probably it could turn into a, a worst case scenario. We might have everyone completely go back to normal because they don't see spread happening in the summer. And then as fall hits, we might see major outbreaks. So that could, um, that could be a real problem uh, for us. And um, that's kind of where I think we'll end up. I, I, I just think that people will probably start trying to get as much back to normal throughout the summer as they can. And we might end up seeing big outbreaks in the fall. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of vaccines, I think that there's, you know, the vaccine trials are moving at light speed. Um, Adrian Hill at Oxford, uh, uh, I think he's at Oxford, uh, is really pushing an adenovirus vectored uh, vaccine through trials very quickly, and they had a, a big leg up. I think there's a report about it in the mainstream media um, this, this week or last. And then we're seeing these DNA and mRNA vaccines get get started and Moderna's trials are going on. So how those turn out, well, it's really hard to say. Um, they, I think they'll probably elicit some antibodies anyway, whether or not it ends up being protective. Well, we'll and, and truly in, in the efficacy trials, you know, I think that will determine a lot. Um, but I do think by the end of the year, we might have some more decent therapies. I think remdesivir, for example, you know, it's despite it being approved, I don't, I don't anticipate that being the silver bullet that's going to save lots of lives. I think it will save it will save lots of lives probably, but um, but probably not. You know, prevent massive ma massive change. Um, and uh, um, I think monoclonal antibodies will come out, uh, and we'll see that those become used um, hopefully by the end of the year. We'll see some go into trials and be be more useful. Um, and so, I, and I, my, my hopes are a little bit more towards the, the therapies, um, because if we have, if we have a decent therapy in our pocket that we can use if somebody really starts to, um, take, turn the corner in a hospital and, and go downhill, if we can use these antibodies, uh, it, just various therapies, whatever might come out as a, uh, as a good and reliable therapy, then it really does change, uh, the equation in terms of what level of risk at a population level we're willing to take. Um, and I, I think that, you know, so in some ways I'm really rooting for the therapies because they're a little bit more predictable. Uh, so just another quick question. Um, so I cover a lot of biotech and a lot of trials are being delayed. And so there's a lot of cancer uh, victims that won't get treated and will die earlier than expected. Um, a lot of people are foregoing therapies in hospitals or can't even see their doctors. Is, I mean, pure speculation here, but is there a chance that a lot more people are dying because of these effects in the shutdown than the lives that we're saving? Uh, well, it goes both ways. We're actually seeing, so yes, I mean, the, the, I don't know if I would say that it's worse than it's, that we're seeing more deaths than the lives that we're saving because of the shutdown. But it is possible that we are seeing, and, and likely, it's not just possible, it's very likely that, we, that people are dying because they're foregoing certain normal things that they would do. So including things like you know, having a heart attack and not, not you know, getting rapid medical attention because you're fearful of going to the hospital, maybe rightly so. And you know, so these, these normal pr um, parts of being in the healthcare system are certainly um, much more limited, and I think people we can anticipate people are dying as a result at some elevated rate. I don't think it's as elevated as the 
the rate of cases. But on the other hand, from an infectious disease perspective or a car accident perspective and all these things that are more at a population level, not an individual health level, we're seeing those go down. You know, things like uh, uh, we, we might even, as we go into the fall, see much more reduced if social distancing happens um, in the fall, we may see much lower amounts of influenza. Um, we'll, we'll potentially see lower, you know, we've had measles before COVID. Measles is in the news a lot because there were lots of big outbreaks happening around the world. I wouldn't be surprised if we see reduced um, new outbreaks this year um, from measles. So we may see reduced cases of other infections, reduced um, driving accidents and, and these other things that require, that, that, that usually happen as a result of people moving around in society. So it's all kind of a, a balance. And I think people are gonna really be exploring this year for many years to come to try to understand, you know, very fundamental things about social behavior and society that are very, you know, without a natural experiment like this are very hard to interpret otherwise. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Um, my question is about uh, social distancing as it pertains to elderly and immunocompromised folks. Um, will elderly and immune, immunocompromised people have to stay home for significantly longer than the rest of us? And what can we do to shorten the duration of their isolation? I mean, I'm basically wondering whether elderly people will have to basically self-isolate at home until there is a vaccine, which could take two years or more, um, or could something else like an antiviral drug or manufactured antibodies make it safe for them to socialize sooner? If so, do you think we should be devoting more of our resources to those approaches, drugs, antibodies? Well, there's a lot of resources that are going into them right now. Um, and uh, the, those who can be working on it generally are working on it. And yeah. so there is a bit of a, a division of labor that is appropriate at the moment. Um, but in terms of resources, I, I completely agree with what you just said. I think that, um, I, I do think that we will have to, th that the vulnerable in our population, we, I don't see a clear avenue to get them out of social distancing mode. Um, as long as community spread is going on. And that's why, you know, if we, if we gave ourselves the time to really push cases all the way down so that we didn't have um, much local transmission anymore, then maybe we could actually think about, you know, maybe population risk would be so low for different durations of time that we could have um, more vulnerable people out in society. But right now, I think we still have enough, enough local transmission that it would be very dangerous. I think that um, one of the things we could think about doing to accelerate this process, which I, which I do think is, um, I, in some ways it can be very controversial, but you know, taking a huge amount of resources and putting it into ensuring that the most protect the the most um, vulnerable amongst us are are really protected. Um, and as people do start to reenter the workforce, so allow people to re-enter the workforce, in particular younger people and people whose, whose individual level risk of severe disease is very, very low, um, that's a good place to start. And actually, you know, if you can divert sufficient resources to actually do a good job at preventing infection of the vulnerable, then maybe you can um, tolerate these outbreaks happening in less vulnerable people and start building up herd immunity at sort of a slow pace. And that's this whole sort of flattening the curve bit um, 
I, you know, and so if we could do that well, then I would be in favor of it. But I just don't, I don't see any evidence that we've really diverted a sufficient type of resources into actually protecting vulnerable. In fact, even just despite all of the social distancing we're doing now, which I don't think we're ever going to get to a, a place where we do more social distancing than we have done, we've still seen uh, infections flourish in the nursing homes. And, you know, that to me is very troubling. I don't know how we, you know, it, it's going to take a lot to really figure out how to actually keep them safe. Um, and until we do that, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be if you're if you are a vulnerable individual and you're social distancing at home, you might. I, I don't I, I don't recommend if you live in Georgia to start going to the hair salon and go out to dinner if those are opening. Um, I think that that's taking a, a pretty hefty risk. Can I just ask a quick follow up about that? So I just want to get clear on what you meant by, uh, you know what you meant by diverting a huge amount of resources and putting it to ensuring that the most vulnerable amongst us are really protected. Um, I want to know what that would look like in your mind exactly, because I think that a lot of younger or healthier people really want to be able to see their parents and grandparents, but are actually worried that it'll be even less safe to do that once social distancing relaxes for them, because then they'll be coming into contact with more people, which means they'll potentially pose a greater risk to the elderly than they do right now. That's exactly right. Um, I don't know exactly what these changes are that I'm envisioning, to be honest. I mean, some of them, I just, I feel like there are, there are changes that could be made. Um, so if, if we started designing tests, so there's been a lot of effort to design new diagnostic assays, and those have generally been with the general population in mind. And I do think that there would be some role, for example, of designing assays with that are very specific to sort of um, use daily use for example if somebody wanted to go uh, into a nursing home I, I think one of the structural changes that could take place is that everyone just to get into a nursing home you have to get tested and maybe you have to do it every single day and that's going to require new diagnostics um, and you know from a diagnostic perspective I actually think that there's maybe ways to do this there's actually quite a few new tests that are becoming available or that are being developed, I should say, that are really rapid. But we have become so focused on getting really sensitive tests. Uh, this is, this is going to go a little bit off the topic, but it, it's more about the use of diagnostics for this purpose. But there's been this effort to develop the most sensitive tests that we can get, which will you know, detect one molecule of the virus in somebody's saliva or nasal swab. And that's useful in some ways. But if you could reduce the, relax some of the requirements of the test and say, you know, we just need to make sure that somebody isn't floridly positive today. And so we can actually, we, we can like have, have tolerate a test that's less sensitive, but cheap enough to use every single day so that somebody could actually just carry around a, a carton of these tests. And before they walk into their parents' house or a nursing home, something like that, they just test themselves. And maybe even if they're positive, if they're positive at such a low level that the test doesn't detect it, then maybe for that day, it won't be the end of the world, but they'll find out that they're positive the next day. And so they won't go into to see their parents the next day. So I think that we can start thinking creatively about how to relax some requirements that are currently in place with the trade-off of being able to have like more frequent testing um, uh, 
for for sort of visiting vulnerable people and for public health measures. So that's one like diagnostic structural change that I could see being made. Other things might be, you know, outfitting, taking it might be very expensive, but making um, making rooms in nursing homes and assisted care facilities more safe through changing the types of pressure that's in the room. And these would require real structural changes to the ventilation and, and things along those lines. But the cost of keeping these people safe um, right now is essentially the, the shutdown of the economy. So that's trillions and trillions of dollars. So can we take some fraction of that and start to really revamp the structure of, of, um, of the locations where senior citizens live, I think would be something useful. Great. Uh, next question. Hi, thank you so much for doing this. I'm working on a story today about recovery data and how important that could be for states to track, even though the definition is still pretty murky. Uh, Massachusetts is currently not doing it, but working on a standardized definition um, as far as tracking how many patients have recovered. How important do you think that data could be when it comes to understanding the virus, what could experts like yourself glean from it? Uh, I mean, getting recovery data is useful, but essentially we can, we can assume that most people, like if, if, we, if instead of using recovery data, we just subtract out deaths from known cases or, the, or extrapolated cases from serological studies, for example, um, I think we, we, we don't have to actually measure everyone who's recovered to know what the recovery rate is. As long as we do a, a mostly decent job at, at um, tracking people who uh, die um, or who are in the ICU. But we know, that, you know, we have a general idea of how many people are in the ICU. We have a general idea of how many people die. And so we can infer recovery rates, um, even if they're not formal recovery rates. And I do have a, a bit of, you know, I think we should have some time frame if somebody is lost to follow up, which given mo many of the positive tests that we're getting now are coming from people who go through drive-throughs and things like that. And many of those people will be lost to follow up in the medical system. And so we won't know if they recover or not. Um, and it would take a lot of resources to follow back with those people. But as long as we can assume that they haven't died, um, by by utilizing death records and things along those lines, I think um, that that should be sufficient rather than trying to track every positive case down and figuring out where they're at three weeks later. Um, so I, I think that there's a definitely utility to know survival rates and recovery rates, but um, I think we can extrapolate um, backwards from the death rates. What kind of things would you be able to glean from that recovery data though, as far as like reinfection rates or that sort of thing? Oh, well, if we know it at an individual level, then that's certainly something we're looking at. For example, to understand um, if, we, if we actually have line item data for, for an individual, we know that somebody has, in, has, um, has actually recovered uh, from infection and then gets sick again, that's extraordinarily important information to know. It's very, very difficult to capture out of the healthcare setting. Um, but we, uh, we're trying to set up big studies where we follow thousands of people in the community with um, surveys and, and uh, serology. And we will be able to know when somebody gets infected and then we'll keep following them for, for um, potentially a year or more. And 
we'll be able to actually know when they recover and then if they get sick again. These are some of the major questions that remain about um, the role of immunity in this virus. And so those types of things I think we can really get at with, um, depending on how good the recovery data is. If it's just population rates, then it doesn't get us too far in that direction because um, until, until cases get high enough that we actually are getting into the, you know, if we see that 70% of the population has recovered, but 70% of it, but 40% but is, is infected today, then obviously that would be important information to know. I don't think we'll, we'll ever get to that kind of thing. That would mean immunity just doesn't exist for this virus. But, um, but I do think there can be benefits, but the more granular the data, the better in that case. Thank you. Next question. Um, thanks so much for taking my question. Um, actually, a bit of a follow-on to that previous question. So I was looking at a paper that came out from Mount Sinai this week, Anya Weinberg. Uh, they were finding that 97% of the people who had positive COVID-19 tests, they were PCR tests, seroconverted, so they were positive for antibodies. And I'm curious how important a part of the basic piece of the puzzle is that? I mean, as you alluded to, there's so many things we don't know. We don't know if this, if, if, well, now we know that people create antibodies. We don't necessarily know that if they have antibodies, they're immune or, or do we, is that known yet? Um, so I think the important part to the, I'm, I don't find it interesting at all that, you know, most people that get infected have antibodies. I think that's a no-brainer. We know, um, despite this being a novel virus, um, we don't have any reason to believe that this is a virus unlike any other we've ever seen. And so we know that when people get infected with a virus like this, that they develop antibodies. Um, and we know that the, the in, within individual kinetics of this virus look just like we would expect and anticipate for the most part from a respiratory virus and the immune response is similar. So, um, so I'm not blown away at all by, the, by, by any data that suggests that most people who get the infection develop antibodies. That's just what we would expect. Um, the real question with this though is, you know, what do those antibodies mean? And that's, that does differ from, every, from one infection to the next. And so we always have to figure it out with, with any new infection uh, or even long, long existing infections, we have to understand that. For example, HIV, um, let's say you do develop antibodies against HIV and most people develop antibodies against HIV when they get it. That's actually what we use to test people for it. Um, they still have the infection and they still will have it for life. And, and so it, that's, an, that's an extreme example of a virus that um, knowing the antibody levels really does nothing for you. Um, you really want to know the viral load levels and how somebody is sort of um, combating it inside the body. With this particular virus, we want to know, we can assume that antibodies exist post-infection. We can assume that some level of immunity will exist. We just don't know exactly what level that will be. Will it be perfect immunity so that you can't get infected again at all? Or will it be partial immunity so that um, so that you can still transmit it, even if you're not feeling um, sick, if you get it a second time, you could still be a transmitter of it? Or will it be very poor immunity that wanes after three or five or six months, and you can actually get a full-blown infection again? Um, you know, that will probably be, I don't anticipate that, that that last scenario will be common, but it could be common after two years. 
So we might see that somebody gets it now, and two years from now, their, their immunity might wane sufficiently that they can actually get a pretty severe infection a second time. Um, so I think those are the questions that we have to be asking. What exactly does this mean? And that, to answer those, it's just going to take time. We have, to, we have to follow people over time. We have to see that they get infected now. We have to see what their antibodies are. And then we have to follow them to see how likely they are to get a second infection. And when they get that second infection, how long after their first did it occur on average? And was it symptomatic or asymptomatic? And did they shed virus? Did they not shed virus? So all of that needs to be done. And that just takes time because we're not, at this point anyway, we're not going in and challenging people with the virus. We're not actually doing experiments and giving people this virus to accelerate that research. It's more something that has to happen naturally and we can study them in these long-term long, long cohort studies. Thanks. Next question. Hello, uh, thanks for taking the call. Uh, Doctor, um, Professor, uh, I just wanted to ask you what you think the impact of summer weather will be on the coronavirus. Uh, a new study came out from MIT that suggests there'll be some impact, but it won't be enough to stop the coronavirus. Yeah, I, and I would agree with that. I don't, um, if we look across the, the globe, we have seen that this virus can transmit just fine in, in warmer climates. Um, so in other seasonal viruses, we have a lot of pre-existing immunity in the population, um, whether it's other seasonal coronaviruses or flu and things like this. And so we actually see that if they come up in the winter, they, that they actually start to decrease both because of herd immunity and the, and the weather you know, can, can have an impact on transmission. And so those kind of work um, hand in hand to bring cases down to reasonable levels. Uh, what we see in this case, though, is we have just a massive number of susceptibles still. And the, that is something we call the force of infection in um, epidemiological modeling terms. That force of infection is just so great right now because there's such um, a susceptible pool. It might slow it down a little bit relative to what it would be otherwise if it was sort of winter all year long. Um, but um, I don't anticipate that it will actually stop it. I think it could slow it down, but I think it's going to be moderate at, at best because people will still be able to transmit it. It might not live as long, for example, out in the environment during the summer. Um, it might not be as transmissible, but if we go back to normal, I do think that we will see um, pretty consistent spread. One thing that could, um, you know, I, which I have no, in, no data on, it's just totally conjecture, um, uh, but one thing that I might hope for is that if spread does continue into the summer, uh, maybe a difference in the air quality will actually, or the air sort of humidity, uh, will uh, reduce the pathogenicity of the virus in us. So maybe a, it, it could be a less lethal virus, uh, for example, um, during summer months, just because of the type of air that we're breathing in and out. Um, I have no no data to back that statement up, but that's just one thing that I, you know, think could also happen. So that if if infections continue, maybe possibly the the mortality rates associated with them would go down. But um, that's kind of where where we're at. Uh, we haven't seen the weather make much of a big difference in the past. Thanks very much. Next question. Uh, so I. I would love to hear your thoughts about um, 
things uh, governments could be doing to um, uh, devote more resources to you know bring the spread under control and, and more quickly. And in particular, um, there's been some discussion of uh, you know the importance of testing and tracing. Um, and some people have argued that like large increases in those would be are a key uh, to bringing the um, uh, the infections under control. How do you think about that versus other things that um, governments might be doing? Um, well, I'm. I think that testing and tracing can be useful if um, if done at the right period, right times. I think testing is definitely needed. I, I I think though that when local transmission is really widespread, just social distancing is kind of the the thing, the best thing we could be doing. What governments could also be doing, though, I you know, in the U.S. anyway, we have no sense of public health laboratories. We we barely have a sense of a public health system. To be honest, our system is entire. Our public health system is essentially our private health system. Meaning, uh, we we utilize the hospitals and the clinics to serve as our public health surveillance system, and that's just poor poor planning. Um, we can't, you know, we don't. That doesn't work if we in a big epidemic like this as we're seeing. So I think that's something that governments should be doing right now, and where where resources should be going in particular because we do have some time We've, we we keep squandering the time so we just need to act and we need to build true public health systems to do surveillance in a in a fast way to be able to spin up whole pro, whole new surveillance systems and tests that um you know have never been used before to be able to have the facilities and the structure in place to move samples back and forth these are like the having a true national surveillance of, observatory and, and laboratory is something that I think is really crucial. And it, it's something that, um, that we're trying to, to develop um, now, which is essentially to create an immunological observatory and where we can actually set up like a, a, a system to be a true public health lab where we can monitor um, the current state of infectious diseases through antibody repertoires, for example, uh, across the globe, or at least starting with Massachusetts and the country, and using different tools that might be available to us, um, blood banks and and um, national donor systems and things like that are great ways to just be able to survey the population at large on a continual basis. And then to go along with that, you just have to build the laboratory infrastructure to take in those massive numbers of samples and test them on a regular routine basis in the same way we might monitor the weather. And you know that's something we're tr we're developing here uh, at Harvard and with colleagues um, uh, you know uh, elsewhere as well. And I think that these are the types of big thinking projects that need to that need to be really sponsored by the government. In in my opinion, rather than a bunch of you know ragtag academics like us just trying to push these programs forward um, using. Um, anything from NIH grants to, to philanthropic donations. I think having real political support for, the, for actually making real public health um, systems get put in place and supported in a sustainable way is, is crucial. Um, but it does take a whole different philosophy about, how, about what testing is in our community and in, in our society. We believe our, the way our whole healthcare and public health system is set up is that testing is a medical intervention and, and if it can't be reimbursed by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, it's probably not worth doing, you know, or, or, or creating. And that's a big departure from public health testing, 
which um, you know really doesn't exist outside of the blood banking system. And you do see it a bit. We test our blood supply to keep the blood supply safe, but why not leverage that same blood supply to actually monitor for the presence of infectious diseases in the community on a routine daily basis? Um, I, I think that those are some big public health infrastructure changes that could be put in place where every state is actually monitoring their populace um, in a real public health way. And then that same sort of facility could be set up. For example, a, a different ideas, I look at the Defense Department and I say, you know, however much their budget is, I, I can't even keep track, but you know, it's far too, far too high a number, I think. And it's being placed into protecting against people, against bombs and things like that from coming into our soil. So that's great. But what we're finding through this epidemic is the, the potential for catastrophic effects from viruses are maybe much greater than the potential of some foreign power, you know, invading us or, or, or bombing us. And I think that given these balance of these trade-offs, we should actually be really supporting a true national defense from, from natural pathogens. And, you know, I don't see any reason why we don't have warehouses full of Roche, Cobas 8800s um, ready to fire up if they're needed to, to really do a lot of testing. Um, some people might say that's too expensive, but it's, it's peanuts compared to building an F-22 Raptor, whatever those jets are. Um, so I, I think that these are the things that we should really be considering as we think about like what the federal government in particular should be, should be doing to protect us. Um, so to, to ask a little bit more about the, the, the tracing question, um, obviously I, I understand why, you know, the social distancing is important right now because the tracing isn't going to work on its own. Um, but wouldn't having more people's tracing still help to, to reduce the, you know, the R0 value and, um, you know, allow the, the quarantine effort to work a little more quickly? Uh, it can. Uh, it's just a, it's a balance of where the resources are going. If somebody is saying, okay, we're going to set a contact tracing protocol up to try to capture all the infections that are happening, um, you know, when prevalence at any when point prevalence at any given time is 15% of the population, um, that's that that I don't think that contact tracers could keep up with that. You know, you might put uh, millions and millions of dollars into um, getting just a small fraction of the cases under control when you have exponential growth happening of the other 95% of cases. So I think that that, yes, it might do some small amount, but relative to where those resources could go, I think, uh, you know, I don't necessarily advocate for contact tracing when, when prevalence is very high. Um, if prevalence is low or it's in a rural community and you can really stop small outbreaks, um, then, then great. I think it's actually, it's one of the, it's absolutely one of the most important tools we have. Um, we also have to ensure that contact tracing is being done safely, uh, is being done appropriately. So for example, I have had experiences where uh, I have contact tracers calling me up to ask about some patients that were positive uh, in facilities that maybe have 30% positive individuals. And they'll call me up about somebody from 25 days ago who was positive. And that's a futile effort. There's no purpose to put resources into tracking down somebody who was positive 25 days ago in a in a center that had 30% positivity. So I think if we are going to be incorporating contact tracing, we need to make sure we're doing it right. 
and, and that the protocols are in place to ensure that we're getting the most out of it. And um, many places across the country, I think are, you know, it's a, for many people, it's the first time contact tracing is being deployed in the US in, in many areas and in this type of way. And, and so there's a lot of uncertainty about how to do it well. And if we're gonna put the resources in, we, we may as well have the right experts advising on it. And we have one question left. Thanks for, for fitting me in here. Uh, FDA today uh, cleared the first at-home saliva test. Uh, I'm wondering if you can sort of talk about maybe the, the advantages and the disadvantages of having a, a test like that at home and, and if this is sort of the start of the, the future of diagnostics for this uh, virus. Yeah, so can you... Um, just to explain, was the saliva test that was approved, are you referring to just the at-home collection and then send it in, or is the test actually be done, done at home? Uh, from what I understand, it's a send it in test. Yeah, okay, That's. Uh, I, I thought you were saying the opposite, something else and I was surprised. Um, so I think this is good. I mean, uh, if you can see, I actually have one sitting, well, you can't see it, but I have a little saliva collection tube sitting next to me here. Um, I think that there's a real utility of it um, to to start being able to have people tested in their in in their own home without having to go to um, without having to go to uh, the physician to get swabbed and and things like that I think is safe and better uh, if it can be done reliably and it can get um, sent sent to a test facility to get results the the one thing that I think needs to be put in place is it needs to just be very explained very well to the individual what to do if it's a positive or negative test. What does it mean? What can they interpret? If people are getting um, clinical tests uh, in the absence of a physician or a nurse or, some, or a healthcare professional kind of advising on the interpretation of that, then there, there needs to be a lot of education or at least opportunity for the individual to ask questions. And so for example, we are setting up a very large study now that will go live soon. And it's going to be sending kits out to people's homes in order to do large scale surveillance of the population of thousands of people over time. And, um, and part of that will be saliva collection test kits and blood pricks for antibodies and things like that with a finger prick. And um, you know, if we can get those going, I, I think that they are useful ways to do surveillance, um, especially during pandemic times when we don't want people coming into a center to get tested. So they, they can be, as long as they can be done reliably and in good labs that, that have approved and invalidated the processes of collection, um, I think that they can be very useful tools. Now, is there a concern about the time that it takes? You know, you were talking about the difference between, uh, you know, get it done at home versus send it into the lab. I mean, is there a concern that the labs might take, you know, longer than normal or there might be a backup or, or something that, you know, might be, you know, easier solved than just having it done yourself? Uh, well, the, the labs may well have a backup and we've been seeing that anyway. Um, my anticipation or hope is that labs will start to be able to get um, much more rapid with their turnaround time Taking a, a saliva sample and, and FedExing it to a lab, though, could actually um, be just as quick as going to a drive-through. Right now, for example, the longest delay that we have in our setups that, that we, part of the, some of the setups that we run um, in Massachusetts is actually 
the it's not the laboratory that the delay is happening in, at least in our facility at the Broad, where we have very high fast turnaround time. It's actually getting the sample to the Broad, to, to the lab, um, can take a very long amount of time. And, uh, and that's because it has to you know, get curried and wait in this place and then get moved to this place and then eventually it gets to the lab. So in some ways, maybe taking a saliva test, having a FedEx delivery person planning to pick it up at 3 p.m. that day, deliver it to the lab that night, and, uh, and having a result by the morning can actually become a pretty efficient process. Uh, so I don't, I'm not so concerned about that as long as the processes are put in place. This concludes the May 8th press conference.